Hey everybody, welcome to the Rich by 36 podcast for Thursday, October 15th. Today I'm joined by Zane Khan. Zane is currently studying economics at the University of Texas at Arlington, and he's able to provide a unique perspective on state capitalism because he's lived in several countries where this form of capitalism is installed, South Korea and the United Arab Emirates, uh, among others. So I'm very excited to to run this for you today. We're going to get into what exactly state capitalism is why it's important for American investors to understand, what are the benefits and risks of state capitalism, is it unique to China, and if not, how have past regimes shaped our expectations for the future of what's happening in China. Um, you know, China's been the fastest growing economy for decades, but a lot of that growth has been financed with debt. Does the trade war... Uh, hamper their ability to continue to grow or to export their way out of uh, any sort of economic issues that that may be coming? Has state capitalism shifted wealth in their country? Has it benefited citizens in their country? What's the Belt and Road Initiative? What's the the role of technology in China's future economic growth? What happened in the great financial crisis to China? You know, and we're going to tie all this into American investors and the, and the future of the two countries. So, uh, again, I'm very excited. Big, big thank you to Zane for coming on with me today. If you want to find Zane on LinkedIn, it's Z-A-I-N Khan, K-H-A-N. As always, you can connect with me at George at richby36.com. All right, let's get to the show. All right, Zane, thanks for joining me on Rich by 36. Thank you for having me, George. Yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate you coming on. We've been messaging back and forth about state capitalism. And, you know, if you could just give us a quick rundown of why that topic is interesting to you and maybe your mm-hmm. personal experiences with it and then why American investors should care. Yeah, sure. So, um, my experience, my first-hand experience with state capitalism came when I went to South Korea. I lived there for seven months, and I saw the role of government in an economy and how crucial that is. Um, realizing the importance of the government role, uh, both on the fiscal and the monetary side, uh, I had a greater appreciation and understanding for state capitalism in general. And also with this COVID pandemic, we're seeing a shift where most people, more and more people, uh, gradually understand the importance of an efficient uh, but an important um, government actor uh, in our local and global economy in general. So that is where my interest in state capitalism started. I started researching over it. Um, I think going into what state capitalism is, is in general, it's the phrase itself. So you have state and you have capitalism, right? So it's basically big government, but not only big government, an efficient one as well. So they know where they're spending their resources, their fiscal resources, and they're accountable for it. What's the difference between state capitalism and communism? That's a really good question. So in a state capitalist society, uh, the government understands and appreciates the role, the market, uh, the role of the market, uh, and and understands that the market plays a better role in in determining the prices for goods and services um, than a, a state actor could ever do. 
So in a state capitalist society, the government actually exploits market forces to benefit not only itself, um, but the society at large as well. Okay. So, you know, what comes to mind immediately is China. Uh, you know, Taiwan, I believe, was another example. Uh, maybe you had some countries in Latin America that were also state capitalists uh, in the 20th, 20th century. So what are the benefits uh, of a state capitalist economy and what are some of the risks? So um, I think state capitalism is an umbrella term. There's a lot of variations in them. So different governments uh, pursue different strategies. So in East Asia, like you mentioned Taiwan and then China right now recently, they're pursuing a policy called EOI. So it's called export oriented um, uh, industrial policy. And then in Latin America in the 20th century, we had uh, the government pursuing a policy called uh, import substitution um, industrial policy. So basically an EOI, which, which has been pursued by a lot of the East Asian countries, is when the government props up its export uh, sector, makes sure that it is globally competitive, and then able to compete in the international market. But with import substitute policy, you have Latin American governments basically um, imposing a lot of tariffs and quotas, uh, restricting trade, um, international trade, and not allowing a lot of the foreign companies to come and compete in the domestic market. So you saw a fall in productivity with uh, a lot of these import substitute, uh, substitution policies uh, that Latin America in general pursued. Um, so because yeah, there- yeah, yeah, just let's take, I don't know if Venezuela is a good example, but we're going to restrict imports and restrict the flow of capital into our country and just focus all of our effort on one commodity. In Venezuela's example would be oil. oil yeah. And what that does, it it reduces the efficiency of capital in your country, right? So, um, and then it just, it subjects you to, so much risk and having your entire economy based on, on one economy. Right. But, but China from, you know, they're, uh, they're different. They're, you know, I'm kind of stumbling for words over this, but um, their focus is, has been for the last, I don't know, 20 years on exports and and getting uh, Western countries to come in and set up factories to, uh, to create goods and, and then ship them out overseas, right? And, and they've had the fastest growing economy in the world for a couple of decades. That's um, right. But now that, and I may be jumping ahead a little bit here, but you know, you have a trade war and, and rising political tensions between the US and, and China. Um, a lot of China's GDP growth has been financed with extreme debt issuance. And in the past, they've been able to export their way out of that to growth. Do you do you see that uh, the the paradigm shifting? Are they are they now focusing? You know, is it technology that's going to lead this next sort of revolution for for China's GDP growth, or are they still sticking with this export driven model? Um, I think if you look at the mandate of the Chinese government, and it's really important because they come out always with a five year plan. And they try to stick to those five-year plans. This is the model, the economic structure of China in general. Uh, if you recently look at the, the plans that they are coming out with, so one example could be China 2030, uh, where they're leveraging industrial policy 
in making sure that uh, they move up the value chain. So we all, um, if, if we remember in the beginning when China um, came into the global market by signing by uh, by signing the WTO uh, accession treaty, and back in I believe it was 1997. So China came to the global market, but the, the the leverage that China had over the global market was cheap labor, right? It was surplus right. labor and cheap labor. So they were able to produce a lot of these um, low quality, low priced goods. And that was where the, the advantage China had over a lot of these other, uh, for example, domestic manufacturing industries in the US and Europe in general, and uh, Chinese companies replaced them, right? But now gradually, China is trying to move up the value chain. So a lot of the growth sectors that they've targeted include uh, artificial intelligence, uh, 5G. Um, so it is really tech-based and tech-heavy. Uh, and th that is where a lot of their investments are flowing in right now because they think that in order to survive and actually um, jump ahead of the middle income trap, they need to uh, move on to um, the, the, the growth frontier. So. Uh, they need to uh, they need to uh, be on the same footing as the US as the EU and the western developed uh, economies as we know of are are they close and, and is that why you know from what i understood if you're a western any western country and you wanted to sell your goods and products like if you're starbucks and you want to come in and set up starbucks in china you have to basically turn over all your recipes or if you're Google, you have to turn over your algorithm, right? And it's, right. it's been yeah. a way for uh, for China to capture data and to capture mm -hmm. technological revolution. Are they are they close to? Because I do think we're, we're kind of coming to a, a kind of a, a a fork in the road where you know America, for example. Yeah, I'm speaking from an American centric point of view, but there's a lot of there's more uh, pressure than ever to kind of reorganize supply chains, distance yourself from that, from what you were talking about, that low end product uh, that you mm -hmm. can get in China and make stuff, uh, make stuff over here, keep our technology to ourselves. Um, you know, is China close to being able to pivot and enter this next revolution? And then, and what's the role of the government? So I'm assuming because of the state-led capitalism, this isn't something that corporations are, are doing. This is a mandate coming down from the government, right? And you mentioned that 2030 plan. So um, I'll shut up and get out of your way here. Uh, yeah, sure. So um, is China close? You mean China close in, in, in terms of innovation, in terms of technological growth? Are they close to catching up with the US and EU where they can be self-reliant? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so let's look at the, the trade war that we're having right now, right, between the U.S. Uh, and China. Although officially uh, they've been able to um, hamper down and have a deal, some kind of a deal, but it's not a long-term deal, definitely. And you touched upon this as well in your question with the IP, IP issue, intellectual property issue that the U.S. is complaining about. They say that our companies, the, US, the American companies, they go to China and they're forced to transfer their technology, uh, transfer their, 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 their knowledge uh, to their Chinese uh, counterparts. And, and they're, they're basically they're demanding China to have a better um, infrastructure in terms of uh, IP protection um, overall. So in terms of technology, I doubt that China is still self-sufficient because if you recently recall uh, 
the 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 White House um, and the Trump administration came up with uh, with a with a with uh, with a ban uh, on any sort of technological transfer from U.S. firms to Huawei. So Huawei is their leading technological company, right? Mm-hmm. In five G, in smartphones, in a lot of the these IoT appliances. Um, the moment that this uh, ban came into effect, uh, a lot of the insiders in the Huawei company started to um, they started to uh, freak out because um, they were dependent on a lot of the technology that was coming from the U.S., uh, specifically for semiconductor chips uh, and other chips that they use in their smartphone devices uh, and for 5G in general. So looking at this, like taking Huawei as an example, and Huawei is is one of the leading electronic um, uh, smartphone brands, consumer brands in China. If they're panicking with this... Um, U.S. ban, then I think a lot of the other uh, U.S. companies, um, uh, I, I mean, Chinese companies uh, are at a crosshold as well. They're not they're not that self-sufficient in this point. But let me tell you, George, they're getting there. I mean, uh, the pace, yeah. uh, the growth that's happening in China right now, um, it's a matter of time, I think. How does state capitalism filter down to citizens of the country? You know, there's there's been a lot made about the rise of the middle class in China. Is that is that propaganda, or you know, or d- does it actually benefit people? And, and maybe you know, not just China, but but if if there are other examples of, of good or bad translation of government policy, state capitalism down to the citizens of that country. Um, you, do, you, do you get what I'm trying to ask here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I think statistics here help a lot. They give a, a clearer and a better picture. So in 1981, China's poverty rate was 88 percent, and in 2015, when they did a con- uh, when they did a consensus and they did a study, they found out that uh, ex- the absolute poverty rate fell to 0.7 percent. So China is actually pretty wow. close to eradicating absolute poverty in their country. So I think um, them following an export-oriented strategy and, and 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 a strong industrial policy in the first place really help not only the middle class, but also the people in the bo- bottom of the economic ladder, right? Because we see such uh, a drastic cut in the poverty rate in the country. It also ties in, a, in into a lot of these uh, trade theories that we have in economics. So I've been studying with Professor Yassar at UTA, and I remember him talking about one of these trade theories, which was which is called the Stopper-Samuelson theorem. And according to this theorem, um, Countries have two factors of production, right? Capital and labor. So we produce goods and services by using capital and by using labor. According to this theorem, the the factor of production that is abundant in that country is going to benefit most from trade and from from state capitalist policies. So in the US, capital is uh, abundant relative to labor, right? We have more capital here than we have labor. So with trade, you've seen a lot of this, these, these benefits and the economic pie going towards capital in the U.S. But for China, you don't have abundant capital. You have abundant labor. You have more than a billion people uh, in the country. So once they started opening up, once they started pursuing these industrial policies, um, the labor benefited a lot. So by labor, we mean um, the general population, right? So a lot of these Chinese citizens, uh, they benefited from uh, the opening up carried out by the Chinese government. Is China trying to export, uh, and we can just 
we'll call it the China model uh, of government state capitalism. Are they trying? Are they trying to export this to other countries? That's a really good question, and this also ties into BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative that the Chinese government is trying to pursue. Personally, uh, from my perspective, I don't think that is the case. I think Taiwan, Hong Kong,、uh, South China Sea are the three contentious issues where the Chinese government is trying to have some kind of political control、uh, because of historical reasons, and we can get into that. But other than that, most of their transactions and most of their relationship. Whether that be Africa, whether that be the European Union, whether that be South Asia, is mostly economic than political. Can you explain the Belt and Road Initiative? Yeah, sure. So、uh, back in 2013, the Chinese President Xi Jinping、uh, he went to Kazakhstan and he made an announcement that、um, the Chinese, the Chinese SOEs, so the state-owned enterprises, are. Are open to、uh, conducting、uh, infrastructure investments not only in China, but in a lot of the developing countries that actually have infrastructure needs.、Uh, there are a lot of infrastructure gaps that the Chinese had agreed to fulfill. So、um, so far, I, I presume the total、um, total amount that has been invested outside of China by Chinese companies is、uh, more than a trillion dollars,、um, and it's and and it's increasing day by day. And it it touches all four, four corners of our globe. So it's in South Asia, it's in Middle East, it's in the ASEAN region, and it's in Europe, and to an extent South America as well. So state-owned enterprises, which could be like Petrol China, the I think they're the largest、um, oil company in the world, and you know that, that can it could be like a, a physical company all the way to a sovereign wealth fund, right?、Mm-hmm. And, and so these. Companies that are controlled by the Chinese government、uh, are making investments and building infrastructure projects around the world,、um, and, and I'm assuming that these are in less developed countries who obviously need the help. And what what are what is China getting in exchange? I mean, you you mentioned it in the previous answer that they're trying to they're not trying to export their ideology. It's it's more economic now.、Mm-hmm. So what are the what we'll come in and we'll build you this highway system or build you these oil drills? But what what is China getting in exchange for that? Well, George, let's look at the the key difference between the Chinese economic system and let's say the U.S. economic system. The Chinese economy has a high savings rate. The U.S. does not. So they have a high saving savings rate. That means China is right now a capital surplus country. They have a lot of capital just lying down.、Uh, it's just the, the the surplus capital is in the country, not being used productively. So I think、uh, the, the the Chinese government realized that instead of having this idle capital just laying within domestic territory, why not just send it out and.、Um, Use it、uh, not only for the benefit of a lot of these developing countries because they actually need it, but also for the for the profitability of a lot of these SOE enterprises, right? These state-owned enterprises, because they,、uh, they they reached a point where they had invested massive amounts of capital within China, and now they were looking for、um, new growth opportunities.、Yeah. And I think one of them is the BRI. Is it? Can it also be? I'd- I don't know if ideological is the right word, but propagandist, or if that's you know the the U.S. has withdrawn from this, this is recently, and this is after the the Belt and Road Initiative, but the U.S. has withdrawn substantially from the United Nations, I believe it is, or the the World Trade 
organization? Maybe that's the. They, the they right haven't one. withdrawn, but yeah, they're they're following a, a lot of protectionist policies under President Trump and his administration. So they are. It's America first, right? So they yeah. Are so there's a from the global system. Yeah. There's a power suck mm-hmm. that I'm assuming with America withdrawing from all this international trade stuff, yeah. right? And it's also if I was President Xi Jinping and I had all this money. Look, it, it's great that we get a return from, you know, whether it's, look, uh, Sudan will help you build oil wells and then we'll get a, a nickel off every barrel that you produce. That's great. But we're also uh, becoming, we're expanding our, our presence and creating profitable job opportunities. And, and from a propaganda point of view, that's a pretty, and, and you know, the, the way that people view the country that's a pretty good thing to do, right? You're helping out, and obviously it's not all, all altruistic, but you are expanding your footprint in a positive mm-hmm. way and bringing value to other countries, which may, and this is, who knows if, uh, if this will come to fruition, but if, if there ever is a head, you know, standoff between China and the U.S. and people have to pick sides, they're doing a good job of, of creating relationships as well, I'm assuming. I mean, you have a really good point there, George. Um, I mean, what, uh, basically, they're, they're, the impression that the Chinese are having on all of these countries that they're investing in is that of uh, someone that is helping them out, right? Someone that is investing in a lot of the, a lot of the, a lot of the needs that need to be met uh, in a lot of these developing countries. But I think it's, it's, it's really important we go and dive into the political history of China. So China became communist under Mao Zedong, right? That's where the Communist Party came into fruition. Uh, Mao Zedong followed a lot of these expansionist policies where he thought that the communist ideology needs to be spread around the world. So they were not only competing with the Soviet Union, but they were also trying to uh, export a lot of their ideology into Africa. So I think Mozambique is an example. uh, Angola is an example. So there were a lot of these uh, communist cadres that were going abroad and um, and helping a lot of these developing countries. But I think the big ideological shift we had within China was um, the passage of power from uh, Mao Zedong to Deng Xiaoping. So Deng Xiaoping is the man famously known to uh, implement uh, these industrial policies that we're talking about and opening up China to the world. Uh, when, when was Deng that? Xiao- so that was, that was in, I, I presume, in the late 1970s. Okay. That's when that shift happened. Um, that's where, when a lot, a lot of you, you see a lot of these um, SEE, uh, special economic zones being built up in China, which accommodated a lot of these US companies to come into China and start producing these cheap goods that we were talking about before. Um, so that helped China um, to start growing with GDP growth percentage averaging eight to 10%. Um, in the process, I think China realized that they have more to benefit if they restrict their um, political ideology being seeping out of the country, instead, um, they're better off if they have a stronger economic relationship than a political one. You get what I mean? Yeah. 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 So that's what I'm getting out of it. But at the same time, you, the point you're making, it, it holds value because um, it is coming off as China being altruistic. It is coming off as China making a good impression. And we don't know what, what the future holds, what the Chinese, how the Chinese Communist Party is going to leverage that and in what direction. I think it's, it's, it's a side benefit. It's, it's certainly nowhere near the main reason uh, for, for doing it. But 
you know, they're, they're looking at this, hey, this may come into play in the future and, and we may need to draw on this. Like they're just, they're basically taking, how do I say this? From, you mentioned that they have a very high savings rate. You know, they've been taking deposits from the rest of the world and they're starting That's to right. kind of yeah. put their, you know, take that capital and start depositing it in other places. Yeah. And, and one day they may need to call it in. Right. Yeah. From, from what I understand, Zane, the, in the 1980s, there was a rural entrepreneurship boom in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in the 1990s, there was a policy shift and they started sucking capital out of rural areas to build up city centers, uh, right. Shanghai. Right. And, uh, yeah. and it was an attempt to, to woo Western companies to come in, right. They wanted them to come into Shanghai and see trees and skyscrapers and go, ah, I could, I could set up shop here. Uh, yeah. And it worked. And it, then in the two thousands, you had a real estate boom in China. And then in, in, which gets us up to the great financial crisis, which obviously didn't originate in China, but I think that their their GDP was either flat or or, or slightly positive in yeah. that year. Can you yeah. talk about what, you know, we, we've talked about some of the risks and benefits, but particularly when you're able to control that much of your economy, uh, is that a benefit when you're in, when, when you're, when you're, when you're facing a crisis like mm-hmm. the global financial crisis. It's really interesting. I mean, when you're comparatively looking at what the U.S. did in the financial crisis and what China did, they diverge a lot. So different fiscal policies were taken by taken by the U.S. Mm-hmm. government and different policies were t- undertaken by the Chinese government. So what did the U.S. Um, government did? What was their response to the financial crisis? I mean, histor- in putting it in a historical context, it makes sense. It was basically um, helping out the financial sector, right? Bailing out these big banks that were at the cusp of um, of, of, of bankruptcy. Uh, exactly of yeah. bankruptcy. But you, you got to also realize the fact that the U.S. financial sec- uh, sector is also global, and m- most of the world relies upon it. So if the financial sector collapsed, then the spillover effects were going to be so large that it, w- it would have left the U.S. border in general. Um, so I think what the U.S. government did historically, putting it into context, made sense. It not only helped the U.S. financial sector, but also a lot of the countries that relied on the U.S. financial sector. But what China did is really interesting. So the Chinese financial sector is not that relevant back in 2008 internationally. Not a lot of they're not that open. Uh, the financial sector is not that open, and it's mostly to serve the domestic market. Um, instead, what the the Chinese government did was they they sort of um, recruited all their uh, state-owned enterprises. They put put them all together and they told them, this is what you have to do. You need to in- invest and invest heavily into the construction sector and into the infrastructure sector. So if you, if you look following the 2008 financial crisis, the SOEs, which were these big engineering firms and these construction companies and national banks, um, what they did was they laid out an infrastructure grid that covered most of China. And, and the byproduct of that is, is that China has one of the most extensive railway lines nowadays um, in, in the 21st century uh, and, dip, uh, and, and, and an extensive highway uh, network. So the Chinese basically poured a lot of money. And this also ties into when you're, when you're talking about fiscal multipliers in your, in your podcast, um, the dollar invested by the Chinese government, the return on that dollar was greater than one. 
if, if, if the Chinese government invested one dollar, the return they got was greater than 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 that dollar, right? And you saw you saw that help the Chinese literally um, climb themselves out of the crisis that we saw. And this also sort of uh, connects to the COVID pandemic that we're having right now, what the Chinese are doing. And you see the benefits of state capitalism in in crises like like the ones we just talked about. That's interesting because the the the, the great financial crisis originated in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're kind of getting second, second and third ripple effects in China. I don't know, believe it or not, but the first spotting of the coronavirus, the COVID-19, was in Wuhan. So this is a, mm-hmm. this is a glo- global financial crisis that has you know, started the, on the other end of the globe and is rippling this way. And I'm uh, just looking at a headline, you know, China's debt to GDP ratio surges to 317% uh, uh, in the first quarter of 2020. Mm-hmm. So it looks like, you know, either they've had to issue significant debt in the first half of this year, or their GDP has significantly shrunk, right? If, if it's just, you know, to, to, to increase if whatever it is, you got to either increase the numerator or decrease the the mm-hmm. denominator to, to make that a bigger number. And, and we did the exact same thing in 2008 where our, you know, our way to get out of this was just to spend and bail out everybody. And, we, and we've done it again this year. So I, the, you know, how has, I think we you, you mentioned it earlier, right? They're, the next focus for them is on technology. And technology is the one piece of the economy that isn't fixed. You, you have a set number of humans. You have a set number of labor participants. But technology can come in and exponentially grow your efficiency and the, your economic output. And I'm, I think I'm probably answering my own question here, but there they're focusing on like our, our neck. The next thing that's going to drive our economy is tech. We can't be relying on exports anymore. They still only have like a, at the end of 2019, like a 50% debt to GDP ratio. We're at over a hundred percent, but um, somewhere in here is a question. I'm trying to, to back my way into it, but how, so how is there the, the, the fiscal and monetary policy in, I'm sorry for turning this into a very China-centric conversation, but you know how how does their ability to what was what what am I trying to ask? You know, for 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 a state capitalist society, is there a debt to GDP ratio that matters compared to the the U.S. a capitalistic society? Um, is there a debt to GDP ratio that, that matters that, that eventually begins to slow growth and, and have marginal rates of return? Um, just because China can come out and say, you know, look, we're, we're doing this. Does it matter how much debt they issue? Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, it does. Um, I think one of the biggest leverage that China has when it comes to their domestic debt is the fact that they own a majority stake in a lot of these SOEs that ha- that are known to p- have a lot of debt in general, right? So it's basically the Chinese government owing money to the Chinese government, right? Because yeah. a lot of these sta- state-owned enterprises are the ones that are 
most debt laden, uh, and they're the ones that are that have a majority. The Chinese government has a majority stakehold, stakehold, um, stakeholding in them. Uh, so it's 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 just like a cycle that's going on, right? Like the Chinese are uh, the Chinese government is um, um, producing a lot of debt, and then the debt that's being owed by is um, to the national banks. So their banking sector is heavily nationalized as well. So it's just um, it's just a circle that's going on. I think um, a lot of a lot of a lot of the economists and um, academics have been um, have been um, they've been they've been um, they've been guessing that uh, China it's it's just about it's just a matter of time before the Chinese economy collapses because of the high debt level that we see um, persisting within the domestic economy. Uh, but, but we but. We're double in terms of debt to GDP, right? In terms of the the level of debt right. to economic output, right? Why? But I, but, but I, I I think the the crucial point here is that the majority of the world is not relying on the Chinese yuan, but it's relying on the China, uh, the U.S. dollar, right? So it, it comes into play the importance of uh, the U.S. domestic currency in the international market. Yeah. Um, what what, but, what would you rather be? What what um. Let's let's just say you're the economy. You're not a citizen. You're not a person. If you're if you're an economy, under which structure would you like to operate? State capitalism, uh, or just American capitalism, or Western capitalism? Uh, you know, George. With, uh, my experience, have seeing both of these systems play out: uh, the U.S. and the European, and then the Korean and the Chinese uh, one. I would say as an economy, I would, I, my, my bias would be towards a state capitalist society because recently we've, we've been having this resurgence of crises upon crises coming in again and again. And I really think in, in, in these scenarios, you need a strong government to help not only the people in the bottom of the economic ladder, but also to provide a safety net for, for investors in general. So they don't need to panic and and start taking out their investments from the financial sector because there's nothing to hold on to. In a state capitalist society, you have a government to rely upon and you have this confidence, you know, um, this, this ties into psychology as well. Um, you're confident that the government will come in and protect you at all, at all costs, even though um, we're in a red zone. Um, this, yeah. The sector is doing bad and the economy in general is doing bad. So... I, w- I would choose a state capitalist society, but then, then thinking about innovation and thinking about market forces and how much they have helped us um, right after Cold War. Um, I mean, for long term, I would definitely go for uh, a capitalist society governed mainly by market forces rather than by a public entity. You know what I mean? So there's a trade-off. There's a long-term yeah. and a short-term trade-off. Yeah. So for innovation, growth, stability over the long run. Yeah. Uh, Western, you yeah. know, or just regular capitalism. But I get what you're saying. So my little brother lives in Dubai right now. Okay. And we, he's talked, and it's, it directly correlates to what you just said. Um, it's a lot easier to manage a crisis when you have a king or a prince ruling the <laughs> the country who can just yeah. come in and decree that this yeah. is what's going to happen. And there's, so I, I get it, right? When they're, when you're in, when you're in crisis, it's better to have less red tape, um, assuming that you have good leadership. Yeah, which yeah, is a big, a big, big that's assumption. a big assumption. Yeah, 
uh, yeah, yeah. That, and, but so, what's the difference between what China has done versus what Taiwan or, or Korea uh, has done in your experience? Uh, the difference, I, I think, the difference comes into the fact that China is humongously big. It's more than a billion people, right? So if you look at Taiwan, you look at South Korea, you look at Japan. There's a point where the growth rate falls off um, after 20 to 30 years of persistent growth rates, high growth rates. They reach a point where they just can't keep on going with the same momentum. They need to innovate and they need to uh, reach out into new sectors of the economy in order to uh, develop at a faster pace, right? And then this comes back to our previous point: being a state capitalist society, you can't innovate that well as compared to a capitalist free market society, right? So they've hit that brick wall: Taiwan, South Korea, and Japan, and and they're figuring it figuring it out how to go on. But with China, China has a lot of room to grow still. They have a they have a, a, a demographic dividend, uh, and they have a government that has made a lot of money, honestly, after. They started uh, participating in the in the global trading uh, sector. So, yeah, China still has room. The question is, when would that space? When will they run out of that space? And when they do run out of that space, what are the next steps that the Communist Party are going to take? Okay, two more questions for you, Zane. Then we'll get you out of here. Mm-hmm. Is there more or less corruption in a state capitalist economy compared to a capitalist economy? Ah, uh, George, I wish I had numbers for you to actually, uh, but but uh, but from a from a personal, per, yeah. If you want my personal opinion on this, yes, I, I I would say there's more corruption in a state capitalist society. In political economy, we have this term called nexus, where there's a government and a business nexus form. So the the business is so tied into the government that whenever a government is coming out with a policy or any new policy, it always takes into consideration the impact that policy will have on on the businesses that are so close and intertwined with government. So state capitalists, definitely. Last question for you, Zane. What, um, what is the take, what should American investors, you know, what's the takeaway from, from, you know, understanding what state capitalism is, understanding where China's next pivot is, they still have room to grow. You know, should we, Is there any sort of like silver bullet that you could take and say, look, either don't invest, invest in this, or be wary of this, or you know, watch out for American companies doing this? Is there any sort of thing that we should be cautious about? I think this, the the U.S. policy towards China is not only bound by the Trump administration, but it's going to keep on going, even if even if Biden comes.、Um, Into the White House, and you have a shift in U.S. political、uh, dynamism, and you have this shift from republicanism to dem-、uh, to the Democrats. I think the policy and and the relationship we we have with China is no longer that friendly, cordial relationship. It's more of、uh, co- competition and, and a difference in political ideology in general. So, I I don't want this to happen, but I think this is definitely going to happen. We're going to see a decoupling between U.S. and China, and that is just being. Um, the COVID pandemic has just sort of、um, increased the, the 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 rate at which that decoupling is happening. So you see a lot of these technological bans that we're having on Chinese tech companies. I would definitely tell investors not to invest in those companies because 
you know, you have the stigmatism and, 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 and uncertainty tied into um, a lot of these Chinese companies in general. So for domestic U.S. investors, I don't think it's a good idea investing in the Chinese financial sector for the what moment. About, what about a company like Apple? I was looking at their uh, breakdown of uh, the breakdown of their supply chain, and it's something like four. It's over fifty percent of their supply chain is such a vague term, but their parts and their manufacturing yeah. over fifty percent occurs in China. Yeah. You know, but is that an issue that we need to worry that, about? That, that, that is an issue. And it's good that a lot of the companies have realized that that's an issue. You can't, you need to diversify your supply chain, especially with the, with, with the global system that we have right now. You can't have it concentrated in, in, in one country. Because as we've seen with the COVID pandemic, if you have a situation, a crisis, what are you going to do if, if half of your supply chain stops operating because the, the country is in a total lockdown? So I think with Apple, for example, they've taken this as, as, as a cue to start diversifying their supply chain. So they're, now you see them investing a lot in the ASEAN region, in Vietnam, in Philippines, uh, in Malaysia. So they're, start, they're starting to expand and, and reduce the risk factor, their, their, their exposure to risk coming from one single country. And that, shouldn't, that isn't China. That, that, the, the example isn't only um, stopping us from considering China. It can be any other country. If Apple, for example, had all of its supply chain, 50% or more than 50% of its supply chain in Vietnam, then that's a risk as well. So it's yeah. not only China that's limiting us here. You know, the, the ironic thing is uh, it's better right now to have your supply chains in state capitalist societies because they've managed the coronavirus better. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. this also goes into when you talked about how your brother lives in Dubai. I was actually, for four years, I was in Dubai as well. So I've seen... Uh, Again, a combination of good leadership and state capitalist policies helping governments um, get out of crises, you know. So, yeah, the importance does, again, it's a short and a long-term trade-off. Yeah. You, you just need to prioritize what you, what you think is important in the moment. So my brother says that living in Dubai is like living on Mars 400 years <laughs> in the future. Would you agree <laughs> with that statement? I would definitely agree because in the summer, a week... Um, I don't know about Fahrenheit, but Celsius is more than 50 degrees Celsius. So people are living in their air-conditioned uh, apartments. Let me, let me Google what that is in, in American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, uh, yeah. 50 degrees Celsius. All right. Yeah, did you go to – That's damn, that's 122. Did you ride a, a camel or rent a Lamborghini? I did, yeah. Not a Lamborghini. See, see that's a lot. A lot of the Americans think that people living in Dubai tend to be super part, – like part of the 1%. Uh, of the of our global system, but there's a lot of people that are struggling there. Actually, you have a lot yeah. of blue collar workers that you know labor rights issues and all that. You have that in Dubai as well. But living in Dubai was definitely if 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 it was it was an experience in itself. You know, um, seeing it's such a different system than what you're used to seeing and the way they operate. It's just it's fascinating. I definitely recommend visiting it. What was your favorite country? To live in outside of the country of Texas, <laughs> uh, I would pick Oman. Have you heard about Oman? Uh, no. Okay, uh, so Oman—it's it, it, a kingdom as well in the Middle East. Um, the reason I'd pick Oman is um, their people. Their people are, are, are extremely welcoming towards foreigners. So, as a foreigner, I felt welcomed in that country. Um, also, it's—it's it's beautiful. The 
They've got some really good landscapes going on there, and they have a stable government. And and for, uh, they they have a policy just like uh, the one in Switzerland, where you're um, friends for all and enemy to none. So the, the, they're they're keeping good relations with North Korea and the United States at the same time. They're keeping good relations with Israel and Palestine at the same time. So they're they're playing this diplomatic role, you know. And it's so, it's it's uh, it's on the water. What sea is is that the? Wow, these images look beautiful. Yeah, it's a beautiful country, right? How old were you when you started? You know your your world travels and living in different countries. I think it started when my family moved to the United Arab Emirates, so Dubai, uh, back in. 2014. So I was um, I was 15 years old. Yeah, I was 15 back okay. then. And then I, I went I went to Oman, um, went to Tanzania and Africa. Wow. Um, yeah, and then came to the U.S. Dude, Oman also was, Korea. Oh, it's Oman beautiful, is, right? You yeah. should go and visit once this COVID pandemic um, helps us. Like we can travel. I definitely recommend Oman. Yeah, this is uh, it's like paradise. <laughs> All right, Zane, I, uh, I've taken up enough of your time. I really appreciate you coming on with me today. Thank you so much, George. It was it was an absolute blast. I, I love talking about these these things, and you gave me a platform, so that was I really appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Avenue's alive tonight